Welcome to the Trinity's Podcast, where we explore theories about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you love God enough to think about Him? Episode 162, Dr. Timothy McGrew on the Convergence of Philosophy and Christianity. Dr. Timothy McGrew earned his Ph.D. in philosophy from Vanderbilt University, and since 1995 he's been a professor of philosophy at Western Michigan University, where he has served for a number of years as chair of their philosophy department. His research is focused on epistemology, logic, probability theory, and the history and philosophy of science, and he also publishes in Philosophy of Religion, specifically on the epistemology of miracles. He's published in leading journals such as Mind, The Monist, and Analysis, and he's a co-editor of the book Philosophy of Science, an historical anthology, and the co-author with his wife, Dr. Lydia McGrew, of the book Internalism and Epistemology, The Architecture of Reason. But he's here with us today to talk about his contributions to the new book, Four Views on Christianity and Philosophy, where he defends a convergence model on which philosophy confirms Christianity. Dr. McGrew, welcome to the Trinity's Podcast. Thanks, Dale. Good to be here. Dr. McGrew, tell us a little bit about your own background. Have you been a Christian for more or less your whole life? And also, how did you end up becoming a philosopher, specializing in theory of knowledge and the philosophy of science? I was raised in a good Christian home with wonderful parents. My father taught theology and Greek at a Bible college, and I learned the Greek alphabet to the tune of Ten Little Indians. In school, I found myself pulled in two directions, poetry and physics, believe it or not. By the time I graduated from high school, I still wasn't sure whether I would become a poet or an astrophysicist. Late in high school and early in college, I started investigating the question of the rationality of Christian belief, and that early interest propelled me in the direction of philosophy, since philosophers deal with fundamental questions of rationality, evidence, and inference. So I transferred to a local Jesuit school to complete an undergraduate degree in philosophy, and then went on to Vanderbilt to specialize in the theory of knowledge, writing my dissertation on strong neoclassical foundationalism. Philosophy of science is a natural cognate for somebody with an interest in the theory of knowledge, since it's a field for applied epistemology. I had some classes uh, in graduate school, uh, some excellent teachers. John Compton, the son of A.H. Compton, was one of the professors there, studied quantum theory with him and the question of philosophical interpretations of it. But my interest in the historical side of the subject got a real boost when I moved on to Washington State University and I sat in on some history and philosophy of science classes taught by a colleague in a different department. When I moved three years later, moved on to Western Michigan University, there was no undergraduate class in the philosophy of science. So I built that, and gradually philosophy of science has become an important part of what I do and of our course offerings, both at the undergraduate level and in our MA program here. Dr. McGrew, as atheist philosopher Graham Oppie has said, one rough way to explain what he calls metaphysical naturalism is to take the worldview of traditional Christianity and then subtract out God and anything else non-physical, such as angels or souls. What's left, roughly, is what the naturalist thinks is real. In Dr. Oppie's view, it is to the advantage of naturalism that it is in this way a simpler theory than theism. Why do you disagree? Well, as you know, simplicity is not a simple concept. Simply subtracting things from your ontology does not always lead to increased simplicity in a sense that makes the resulting worldview more reasonable. For example, what happens if you take the entirety of Graham Oppie's ontology, everything that he thinks exists, and then you subtract Abraham Lincoln from it? 
as much as possible, whatever that means, remains the same. The resulting ontology is a tiny bit leaner than Oppie's actual ontology, but of course, we've created a complete explanatory mess. Nobody, or at least nobody sane, thinks it's reasonable to pare down our metaphysical commitments by subtraction of this kind. There may be other reasons to pare them down, but just by itself, I don't think that that's a very good way to approach the question. A naturalist could try to make an argument for the greater simplicity of his position by doing a sort of comparison of lists. Mine with his. He can say to me, you believe in A, B, and C. I believe only in A and B. If that were all that's going on, then it's true that there's more that can go wrong with my list of beliefs than with his. I believe something extra. But of course, that's not what the naturalist is doing. He's asserting A and B and denying C. And there's just no general rule of probability theory that will tell you that the probability of A and B and C is less than the probability of A and B and not C. There's absolutely no general relationship there. Everything depends on the specifics. So we have to fall back on the question of which view on the whole gives the best account of the evidence. If there are pieces of my ontology that do no work, that play no role in explaining evidence and are not made probable by the things that do play such a role, then maybe they can be set aside, but it all depends on the evidence. So we really can't make any progress just comparing our ontologies in an evidential vacuum. So you agree that simplicity is an important criterion of theory choice or comparing competing theories, but you think by itself it doesn't do much. Is that right? I think it might be a tiebreaker in certain highly artificial situations that we're almost never in. And I also think that there are other sorts of simplicity, not the subtraction style ontological simplicity that Oppie wants to lean on so heavily, that have more epistemic value. So, for example, in the Ptolemaic system of astronomy, that was an attempt to fill out at least one conception of what Aristotle's natural philosophy pushed us toward. You've got this fantastic system of cycles and epicycles for every planet. And it's really quite crazy looking. But if you look at Copernicus' view, if you take a look at De Revolutionibus and you say, hey, how many cycles and epicycles does he have? It turns out it's just about the same number. It looks just as complicated. But in Ptolemy's system, for every planet and for the sun, there is some epicycle or cycle that has a period of exactly 365 and one quarter days. That number keeps coming up over and over and over. Whereas in the Copernican system, all of that collapses into one 365 and a quarter day trip of the Earth around the sun. That's a sense in which Copernicus' system is simpler. It eliminates unexplained coincidence. But that's not because he has fewer epicycles. It's not because the ontology of his system is simpler. It's a different sort of simplicity, and I think a significant one. I'm just saying this as an illustration of the fact that it is not possible to collapse simplicity into a comparison of the lists of the things you think exist and say, all right, that's the thing, and that's what gets all the epistemic cachet of appeals to simplicity. Actually, other kinds of simplicity are more important.
Dr. McGrew, as you note in the book, miracle claims are common in the various religions of the world. Many suppose that this fact defeats Christian appeals to miracle reports in support of our claims. Does it? No. And the idea that it does is an odd misconception. For one thing, not all miracle claims are equally well supported. David Hume, the great Scottish skeptic, writes as though every religion were founded on miracle claims. But actually, this is untrue. Reported miracles abound in established religions. But among the great religions of the world, and even the minor ones, only Christianity and Judaism profess to have been founded on the basis of miracles. One of Hume's contemporaries, William Adams, put it well. Adams says, there is a wide difference betwixt establishing false miracles by the help of a false religion and establishing a false religion by the help of false miracles. Nothing is more easy than the former of these or more difficult than the latter. There's actually a significant body of work on the question of how to distinguish spurious miracle reports from genuine ones. John Douglas, another of Hume's contemporaries, proposed three criteria by which to test proposed miracles. Was the event reported only long after it was supposed to have happened? Was it reported only at a great distance from the place where it was supposed to have happened? Might the report have been allowed to pass for truth without being examined by those best placed to detect any fraud? All of Hume's examples in the second part of his famous essay of miracles run afoul of one or more of these criteria. That does not prove that miracles attributed to Vespasian, for example, didn't take place, but there's a very significant difference in point of evidence between miracle claims that cannot pass these criteria and miracle claims that can. Second, Hume assumes that miracles can be worked in only one religious tradition. That's a disputed point in the historical literature. Most people working on the subject today are open to the possibility that miracles, as events exceeding the power of nature brought about by supernatural agents, might occur in more than one religious tradition. So the objection breaks down pretty severely at multiple points. So one point is that when people look at the vast array of miracle claims coming from all kinds of different quarters, right, Hindus, New Agers, Christians, Muslims, they just get overwhelmed and they just want to say, oh, it's, how would I even start with this? I'm just going to say it's all rubbish. But your point is, no, there has to be a large-scale winnowing down. We have to hack back most of these claims. This has got to be right. I mean, it strikes me that most Christians are skeptical about most miracle claims, even Christian ones. So you can't just dismiss belief in miracles as just a result of backwardness, barbarity, ignorance, and credulity, because the believers in miracles dismiss most miracles for seemingly decent reasons. I'm reminded of uh, a couple of years back in some charismatic circles in Christianity, some people were claiming that God was putting gold fillings in their teeth during a church service. Most people don't believe this. <laughs> they, they think, no, you had dental work and you forgot about it. That's a much better explanation than that God suddenly filled in your cavities with gold fillings right now. Absolutely, yeah. Should there be another criterion like just kind of silliness or pointlessness? Or uh... <laughs> So this is a, a good question, and I do think that some of the older work on the subject is pertinent here. Thomas Henry Huxley famously said that he wouldn't believe 12 sober men if they swore up and down to him that they'd seen a centaur trotting down Piccadilly. Mm -hmm. It's just too silly. 
Matthew Arnold, in a similar vein, spoke of a sort of a silly miracle as one that he thought many Christian believers would endorse. I think he's wrong on that, but of, of turning a pen into a pen wiper, a very different kind of physical object transformed before your eyes. The interesting thing about both of these examples is that they're examples of crazy things happening, if we took them seriously, that are completely disconnected from anything that we can even begin to recognize as a reasonable, sufficient purpose for the working of a miracle. They're just incidental prodigies. They're not connected to the promulgation of any doctrine, Mm -hmm. to the correction of any grave errors. They're not connected to anything that would tell us what we need to know. They are truly disconnected events. And uh, William Paley, I think, following uh, right in the same train of thought here, says, look, for detached things like this where we can't see any point or purpose to it, we wouldn't know what to believe if we did believe the miracle. That itself is a suggestion that this is not something that is divinely worked. It's not a guarantee. But again, the silliness, I think, is partly a function of the sheer disconnectedness of the event with anything of religious significance. Mm -hmm. Hume likes to say that when a miracle is advanced in the defense of a religious belief, then that's just laughable. It's more properly a subject for derision than for argument. And the reason is that many frauds are propagated in the name of religion. Fair enough as far as it goes. But there is another side to that question, which is where else would we expect a real miracle to be worked but in a religious tradition. It's very difficult to see what the evidential value could be if it were not connected to some body of teaching, of doctrine, giving us some message that we needed to know. So really that consideration, oh, miracles abound in religious traditions, that does cut both ways here. We should expect more frauds in those cases, but also if there were ever a real miracle, that's pretty much where we would look to find it. So I don't find the appeal to religious traditions to be a strong reason for setting things aside. Still and all, yes, there are these silly disconnected things. So I'm in full agreement with you there. Your other point was interesting, Dr. McGrew, about miracles in other religions. People like Hume, they seem to think that if any one religion turns out to be the true one or the most true one, you will then have to say that all the other miracle reports are false and all the others. But it's always been part of the, for instance, the Christian critique of pagan religion, that somehow demons are involved in, you know, say, Greek and Roman religion. But then why wouldn't they possibly have the ability to pull off a miracle? Even in the account of Moses versus the Pharaoh's magicians, is it clear that that's just supposed to be trickery? Or is this supposed to be an actual miraculous thing? This is a really interesting point to look at in a historical perspective because there's been a dispute historically about whether agents other than God can work a true miracle. Fleetwood published an essay on miracles back around the turn of the 18th century in which he claimed that every miracle is either worked directly by God or delegated by him to someone else who has the power but only sort of on sufferance from God to do it. He was engaged by other people who said, wait, wait, whoa, whoa, no, and and for exactly the reasons you bring up, the Egyptians, magicians worked miracles, 
John Locke, in his Discourse of Miracles, responds to Hoadley, takes Broadly Fleetwood's position, Henry Stebbing takes Locke's position on this issue. So it's, it's really a very interesting mix back and forth. But I think that most people, not all, but most people who are today working on the subject, and this regardless of whether they're believers in miracles or disbelievers, think that if miracles can happen at all, then it's at least an open possibility that they can be worked by beings other than God. And in that case, we should not necessarily turn down the possibility of a miracle occurring, say, in the Hindu tradition. Always we have to ask how good is the attestation? What's the evidence? And one of the things that I think Hume does, and I think many people follow him uncritically here, is he insinuates without argument that there are miracles at the founding of religions as well attested in their own way as, say, the resurrection is attested within Christianity. And his critics took him very severely to task for that. They pulled apart his examples in the second part of his essay of miracles, critiqued them point by point, contested his sources. He's counting on Montgeron for the miracles at the tomb of the Abbey Paris. Hume says that those are just as well attested as the Christian miracles, but people like William Adams and George Campbell and John Leland came in and said, no, Macaron doesn't even have his facts straight. You're messing this up. Empirically, they're just not on a par at all. So that was the older approach, to take the evidence very seriously and to say, let's compare these in point of evidence. If you do, you will find that they're just not on a par. That does leave open, though, the possibility that one might be, because after all, we're looking at the evidence and we can't close these things off a priori. So if a Christian is considering some non-Christian miracle claim, one thing they might want to do is undermine it somehow is not believable, right? Say that, well, the report's late, it's unreliable, it's got some other motivation other than telling the truth. But another thing a Christian might do, if it's possible that miracles are wrought by beings other than God, or even if it really is God, a Christian just might accept it and say, so what? You know, an old Muslim lady prays that God would heal her from a fever, and the fever instantaneously goes away. Mm -hmm. Now, what if God really did that? So what? It's not like validating the ministry of Muhammad or the message of the Quran. Assuming it's done in private... Let's say this is your neighbor tells you this. Should you be so sure that that didn't happen? I don't see why. And that's a case where allegedly God is doing the miracle. But yeah, I mean, I think there are biblical examples of what look like people within pagan religion doing miracles, which you would think that, well, that can't be God. Right. So I, I think that we always have to take an empirical approach to these things, an evidence-based approach. How we evaluate evidence matters. I would be initially dubious about that, even if my neighbor were a devout Christian. I am, by nature, a somewhat skeptical person, but not so skeptical that my initial skepticism can't be overcome by evidence. And I think that is the thing that I most fear in Oppie's position. There's a very important question that we can ask ourselves that is really at the foundation of much of the theory of knowledge, and that is, when should I change my mind? How will I know if I am wrong? 
when he's discussing the issue of naturalism and miracles in the Four Views book, Oppie says, as a quotation from page 155, the naturalistic unacceptability of the narrative is alone sufficient to tell us that the report involves some gilding of the lily. Wow, what if he's wrong? How will he discover that? If we set aside all reports, just because they don't fit in with our overarching philosophical view, then we're really cutting ourselves off from data. And I think cutting yourself off from the evidence is not a good idea in any area. And since I view the inquiry into miracles as just part of the rational landscape, I don't see why we should invoke a separate rule or a separate principle here. There's a wonderful quotation from one of William James's books. He brings it up in a somewhat different context, but he says, a rule of thinking which would absolutely prevent me from acknowledging certain kinds of truth, if those kinds of truth were really there, would be an irrational rule. And I think that's exactly right. We want to make sure that we don't have any philosophical trapdoors where we can go in, but once we do, we can't get back out. I think we always need to retain that openness to evidence and the ability to change our minds. Right. And if you're going to have some commitment that's going to just insulate you from any miracle claims, there needs to be a reason for that, right? Some people would say that miracles are impossible. I don't even know how you begin to make a case for that. You would need to show a contradiction in the concept of a miracle. And it seems to me that people can't do that. Or maybe, you know, an argument to the effect that necessarily any miracle report is going to be incredible. There's always going to be more evidence against it than for it or something like that. But Hume doesn't seem to persuade on that front. So I wasn't clear why Dr. Oppie was so untroubled by miracles in this book. I should have asked him directly, but what, what was your... Just as simply that he's convinced that naturalism is true, so convinced that he doesn't need to, you know, really worry about any objections? Well, that does seem to be the import of that quotation that I just gave from him. It's on page 155, about eight or nine lines up from the bottom. If it doesn't fit with naturalism, we have right there a sufficient ground for believing that the report is in some measure fabricated. And it's pretty clear that he means with respect to the supernatural stuff in it. So it seems to me that he's trying to do history a priori. That's not a good way to do history. I do grant, because we all apply this in everyday life, that it is reasonable to demand a higher standard of evidence for miraculous claims than it is for mundane claims. Mm -hmm. Near the end of his book, Orthodoxy, G.K. Chesterton, whom I love, says something that I don't agree with. He says, if you believe an old apple woman when she tells you something about apples, then you should also believe her when she tells you something about miracles. I think that's a misstep. And I think that plays into the kind of image that many people have, maybe Oppie among them, that to allow one miracle is to open the floodgates to all sorts of nonsense and who wants to do that? Certainly, that was Hume's own view as he reveals in some of his correspondence that's reprinted in Campbell's dissertation on miracles. Hume thought if you once began looking into these things, you would just absolutely fall for them. And therefore, the wise man shuts himself off from the evaluation of the evidence of many things altogether. That's a way to keep from believing nonsense, but it's also a way to keep yourself from believing truth if it so happens that you're wrong in your initial impression. 
So I do grant that you may ask for more evidence in these cases, but I don't think it's reasonable to demand more evidence than can possibly be brought forward or than could be expected to be brought forward if the events had in fact taken place just as they are said to have taken place. Dr. McGrew, a popular subject for Christian apologetics has always been the resurrection of Jesus. In a reply to you in this book, Dr. Graham Oppie says that, quote, There is no evidence for the resurrection of Jesus apart from Christian writings. All the evidence we have is the contents of a modest number of documents of uncertain pedigree, end quote. Do you agree? While there are a lot of problems here, first let's back up and ask what sort of evidence we should expect. If the resurrection occurred, it was a historical event. The evidence we should expect is historical. Now, that Jesus was claimed to have risen from the dead is both directly and indirectly attested by early pagan and Jewish sources. That may not be very significant evidence in the face of the strangeness of the event, but it's certainly not nothing. Second, what exactly are we entitled to expect? People who believe that Jesus rose from the dead almost inevitably became Christians themselves. It's more than a little odd to say that the only evidence you will accept for a historical event is the testimony of people who disbelieve it. Do we make that demand for any other historical events? Mm. If not, why should we employ a double standard? Perhaps the idea is that the first witnesses to the resurrection were biased, but I'm not even sure what that means. That they said things they themselves did not believe? People will do that when there's an adequate motive, and we know what those motives are, money or power or sex or some other natural human inducement. But it's a notorious fact that the early Christians weren't in it for any of these things. You would probably say wishful thinking. But wishful thinking of what? These are devout Jews. They have a relationship with God who has parted the Red Sea and brought them out of the land of Egypt. They know what the technique is for worshiping God. They have an elaborate system of rules. They have a great deal of national pride invested in this. What exactly are we supposed to say was moving them to believe wishfully in the resurrection of Jesus? He wasn't the kind of Messiah they were expecting to have come. They wanted a military leader. You can even see this in, say, Luke chapter 1, the whole tenor of the expectation of the coming of the Messiah in Luke 1 and 2 is pre-Christian. It doesn't reflect what Jesus was actually like. It reflects their reading of Old Testament texts and the expectation that those texts had induced in them around the turn of the century. So it's certainly not simply a matter of wishful thinking. They had all they could wish for. They had everything to hope for. This didn't fit the prevailing expectation, and yet it took the world by storm. That suggests to me that there was something other than wishful thinking going on. In fact, it suggests it extremely strongly. 
there's a basic principle of evidence that can be stated quite simply. If the evidence is pretty much what you would expect, if a hypothesis H were true, then it can't very well be used as evidence against H. Oddly enough, the fact that we find Christian writers giving the fullest and earliest accounts of the resurrection is treated as though it were a problem, as though their being Christians were a disqualification rather than the most natural and expected thing. So I think the attempt to dismiss the evidence simply because most of it comes from Christians is deeply misguided. Third, I think Oppie is misdescribing the Christian evidence we do have. He describes the documents as modest in number and uncertain in pedigree. As far as modesty in number, I just don't grab the point. Of what other first-century peasants can it be said that we possess four distinct first-century biographies of him, or a history of the propagation of his beliefs in the three decades immediately following his death, or letters, letters from one of the chief missionaries of the new movement he founded? By the standards of ancient history, this is fantastic material. I would also contest Oppie's claim that the four Gospels are uncertain in pedigree. I won't try to cover the ground I've already gone over in my public debate with Bart Ehrman, but I will state for the record my conviction that the evidence we have for the authorship of the Gospels would be considered ample if it weren't for their religious significance. Take the fourth Gospel, for instance. Every scrap of evidence we have from the writings of the early church indicates that the fourth Gospel had always been known to be written by John, and we have lots. Mm -hmm. Second, the gospel itself shows that it must have been written by a Jew who was a native of Palestine and an eyewitness of numerous events, including many where only Jesus and the disciples were present. From internal clues, we can pretty safely narrow it down to John. So I just disagree very sharply on Oppie's characterization of the evidence. I think he's looking at it in soft focus. He's taking for granted general flippant statements of the kind that popularizers like Bart Ehrman have put out, and he's not drilling down and looking at the specifics. Once you look at the specifics, it takes on quite a different aspect. Yeah, I wouldn't say the undisputed letters of Paul are of uncertain pedigree either. I mean, everybody thinks those are by one guy, and we know who that guy is. And 1 Corinthians is one of the undisputed letters, and mm -hmm. we have in the beginning of 1 Corinthians 15, almost certainly Paul's quotation of a creed that goes back to the first years of Christianity in the early 30s. And this is widely acknowledged even by skeptical scholars like Gerd Lüdemann. So I can't agree with Oppie's characterization of the evidence on any of those fronts. Dr. McGrew, several times in this book, there are disagreements between the Christians involved about whether the Apostle Paul in Romans 1 presupposes, gives, or in any way supports the project of natural theology, wherein Christian philosophers and apologists have tried to argue for the existence of God, or something close to this, based only on premises that all people should affirm. In the book, you mentioned two earlier Jewish texts, Psalm 19 and the Wisdom of Solomon, chapter 13, which is in Catholic and Orthodox Bibles. Let's listen to these passages that you cite, and then maybe you can tell us how, in your view, they're relevant to this dispute about Romans 1. 
The heavens are telling the glory of God, and the firmament proclaims His handiwork. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night declares knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words. Their voice is not heard. Yet their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. For all people who were ignorant of God were foolish by nature, and they were unable from the good things that are seen to know the one who exists. Nor did they recognize the artisan while paying heed to his works. But they supposed that either fire, or wind, or swift air, or the circle of the stars, or turbulent water, or the luminaries of heaven were the gods that rule the world. If through delight in the beauty of these things people assume them to be gods, let them know how much better than these is their Lord, for the author of beauty created them. And if people were amazed at their power and working, let them perceive from them how much more powerful is the one who formed them. For from the greatness and beauty of created things comes a corresponding perception of their creator. Yet these people are little to be blamed, for perhaps they go astray while seeking God and desiring to find him. For while they live among his works, they keep searching, and they trust in what they see, because the things that are seen are beautiful. Yet again, not even they are to be excused, for if they have the power to know so much that they could investigate the world, how did they fail to find sooner the Lord of these things? I find these two passages completely persuasive in terms of the light they shed on the proper interpretation of Romans 1. Wisdom of Solomon, though an intertestamental work, was one of the most widely circulated, widely read, non-canonical works in Judaism in the first century. It just beggars belief that Paul was not aware of it. He must have known that at least the Jewish parts of his audience in Rome would be recognizing his allusions to it. It's very clearly a work of natural theology. How much better than the works is the Lord, the author of beauty, who has created them? If they are astonished at the power of these works, let them understand how much mightier he is who made them. For by the greatness and beauty of the creatures, the created things, we can see in proportion the greatness and beauty of the maker. If you read Romans chapter 1 with this background in your mind, you realize that Paul is bringing the changes on a common manner of argument. If they could see so much, how did they miss the Lord of all of this, the Lord, the creator who had made all of this? Or take Psalm 19, the psalmist doesn't say that God used the heavens to declare his glory like you or I would use a cell phone. That is, as an instrument arbitrarily selected that has nothing to do with the content of what we say over the phone. He says that the heavens themselves declare God's glory and display his handiwork. I hate to belabor the obvious, but sometimes it really is necessary. Was Paul a Jew? Were the Psalms part of his heritage? Was he educated enough to know this fact? If so, why wouldn't we expect the same themes to show up in his writings? Paul Moser makes much of the fact that Paul doesn't use terms like therefore or implies in Romans 1. So what? We all frequently make arguments simply by indicating their premises or pointing to the factual bases of them, leaving our hearers or readers to draw the obvious conclusion. 
It's a funny thing that both Moser and Scott Oliphant think I am misreading Paul, and I think, and I have a lot of commentators on my side here, that they are misreading Paul. I'm absolutely content to let readers of the book and listeners to this podcast read the passage carefully, considering the Jewish background, and make up their own minds. There's one other point that I think came up in your interview with Paul Moser, and that is, why doesn't the New Testament contain more such arguments if they're any good? I think the answer is really quite obvious. The New Testament was not written to convince atheists to believe in God. The recipients of the various books of the New Testament were Jews and proselytes to something growing out of Judaism. They didn't need to be reminded, much less persuaded, of the existence of God. That's why the matter comes up in Romans, only indirectly, in the course of Paul's doing something else. So, in a sense, it's indisputable that there's not an explicit argument there because there's no therefore or some equivalent hint that there's premises and conclusion. But clearly, there's supposed to be information available to people, the Gentiles, in nature about God. So, at bare minimum, it looks like there must be materials that you could possibly use in an argument here. But what you're saying goes a step beyond that. Often, we'll give an argument that's implicit just by saying some premises. Or even saying a conclusion and let some of the premises be understood. Or saying the premises and letting the conclusion be understood. Or saying the premises and saying the conclusion, but not putting the word therefore in between them. Look back at the passage from Wisdom of Solomon 13. Therefore is not a term that appears in that passage. Nevertheless, it's absolutely clear that there's an argument being indicated here. The premises are clear. The conclusion that should be drawn is clear. This is the way we commonly present our arguments. Very seldom do we sit down and write things out as if it were a proposition in Euclid that we were demonstrating. In fact, we take fluent speakers of English who are completely competent to make and understand arguments, and then we train them in this very narrow discipline of laying things out premise by premise and putting therefores at all the right places. That does not represent the way in which most people make arguments. It doesn't represent the way in which Paul makes arguments. He occasionally has a therefore, but it's by no means his universal procedure. This is a point that comes up when I've taught a critical thinking class, just how quickly an argument can go by and how very often a premise or a conclusion is left unstated. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, imagine a couple of bigoted Northerners are talking about me, and, and one of them says, do you think Dale's stupid? The other one says, well, he's from the South, isn't he? Uh, so, I mean, the second guy <laughs> yeah, thinks it, all... There is an implicit argument yeah. there. Of course there is. It's a bad one, but it's, it is an attempted argument. <laughs> right. The, the unstated premise is all Southerners are stupid, and that Dale is a Southerner, and then the implied conclusion is that, therefore, Dale is stupid, which, of course, is a valid argument, as unconvincing as it is. Uh, at least it's a valid argument. V- validity by itself, absent soundness, is overrated. <laughs> sure, absolutely. Dr. McGrew, in your chapter in this book, you give some arguments designed to show the falsity of naturalism and to defeat arguments from evil to atheism. I thought these arguments are really interesting, and people should check these out in the book, because you give a very compact, I think, and powerful case in both of these But you also get more specific, considering a bit of the evidence for Christianity. You say, quote, It is a pity that the scope and strength of the evidence for the basic historicity of the four New Testament Gospels is not more widely appreciated, end quote. Dr. McGrew, can you just briefly sketch out this evidence for us? Gosh, where to begin? 
The external evidence for the traditional authorship of the Gospels is unanimous, and by comparison with what we have for the works of other ancient writers like Thucydides, it's very early and extensive. Scandalously enough, Bart Ehrman omits all reference to this evidence in his textbook on the New Testament. I'm not sure how you could get away with that in any other historical or philological discipline, but somehow when it comes to the New Testament, we're just allowed to ignore the primary kind of evidence we would use in any other historical inquiry. The internal interconnections of the Gospels, not simply they're telling some of the same stories in approximately the same way, but the way that one Gospel will supply details that explain puzzling features of another are extensive, and they crisscross the texts in all directions. The Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, explain John. John explains the Synoptics. The Synoptics explain one another. This argument from undesigned coincidences is, in its cumulative force, extremely persuasive far more than the pedophaging about discrepancies in the texts that seem to be the favorite pastime of some critics. A thoughtful cross-comparison of the character of Jesus displays the unity of the portrait, particularly when we compare things like Jesus' characteristic methods of teaching in the Synoptic Gospels with his method of teaching displayed in separate scenes narrated only in John. Each of the Gospels makes contact at multiple points with data from archaeology and from non-Christian historical sources. The book of Acts is a continuation of the Gospel of Luke that describes the growth of Christianity as it spreads out from Judea and across the Roman Empire. It covers a wider geographical surface area than the Gospels, and so, as you would expect, there are more chances to check it out. And it turns out it's confirmed by a dazzling array of external evidence, even in minute details. It displays the life of the Christian community that's interwoven with institutions that would just be utterly inexplicable unless the climactic events of the Gospels had taken place more or less as they are described. That narrative in Acts is cross-confirmed by the major letters of Paul, who was an active participant in the events narrated. The seven letters almost universally acknowledged to be genuine Pauline epistles provide extremely strong confirmation of the narrative in the book of Acts. The interconnections there are just massive. Again, I want to stress, in any matter that wasn't religious, this kind of evidence would leave no reasonable doubt that the main outlines of the facts and even many of the details were correctly reported. Anyone who wants to get a sense of the scope of this evidence should probably take a look at my friend Craig Keener's book, The Historical Jesus of the Gospels, which is a massive and extremely thoughtful piece of work. Other than Keener, Dr. McGrew, what would you recommend for somebody wanting to gauge the evidence for the basic reliability of the uh, four Gospels? There are so many places to go with this. It's hard to narrow it down to just one, but I'll be self-serving here and mention the fact that my wife, Lydia McGrew, has just completed a book that's going to be out next spring called Hidden in Plain View, Undesigned Coincidences in the Gospels and Acts. This will be coming out with DeWard Publications, and if you want to pre-order it, they should have a page up for pre-ordering pretty soon. She covers this in several different chapters in two parts. First, in part one, the undesigned coincidences among the Gospels, and in part two, the coordination between Acts and the Pauline Epistles. When she does the latter, she breaks out separate chapters on coincidences between Acts and the universally acknowledged Pauline epistles and coincidences between Acts and the other Pauline epistles. And she's gone beyond some of the older works like Blunt's Undesigned Coincidences or Paley's Horai Paul and I because she's actually gone through the texts and set aside anything that somebody might question or object to because it depends on a reading that's only in the majority text, not in the Alexandrian text family. 
So she's really done a lot of work updating this kind of internal argument. It's only one strand of argument. And it's only one form even of internal argument, but I think in its cumulative force, it's highly persuasive. Dr. McGrew, in some of his works, and I think some of his talks, Bart Ehrman has mentioned an interesting phenomenon that I think it's undeniable that this happens, which is that later works always want to fill in more details and sort of satisfy the reader's curiosity about things that are mentioned earlier. He gives the example of material relating to Pilate. What was Pilate thinking? Pilate's correspondence with different people. And these are obviously from the, what, the second or third centuries. Or, you know, what happens to Paul after the end of the book of Acts? That one bugs me. So someone comes along and you get the Acts of Paul in the second century. How do you screen out this phenomenon of people just sort of inventing imaginatively more stuff when you're comparing the different sources? There are multiple ways to approach that problem. One of them is to notice how the early church handled the curating of the documents that were very early on collected as the Gospels or the memoirs and as the epistles, the writings of Paul. They were savage in criticizing people who played fast and loose with that. Marcion, for example, took a copy of the Gospel of Luke, cut out all of the stuff that he thought was too Jewish, Mm -hmm. and published it as a gospel. And Tertullian takes him to the woodshed for this. He says he has dared to publish something as a gospel that does not even bear the name of its author on it. Now, that's a pretty obvious indication that in Tertullian's time, these things are circulating only with names attached, and it's scandalous to circulate something without a name attached to it. Or take the way that the church handled the author of the Acts of Paul and Thecla. This was a document that filled in many of those juicy details that we wanted to hear. He got excommunicated for having written this up, even though he was a bishop in the church. You don't do pious frauds. That was the attitude of the early church. This is not acceptable. People did write those things. They circulated, but the church community decisively rejected them. And in fact, if you read Eusebius, you'll find that there's a whole history of people saying, well, these books are received by everyone. These books are received by some, but disputed by others. And these other books are rejected almost universally. Eusebius is very careful to note which books fall into which categories. So I don't think that we can just say, well, people tell funny tales and they try to fill things in and then write off all of what we have in the New Testament or even any significant portion of it as being fabricated after the fact to answer people's curiosity. Another way of approaching this problem is to look at the specific things that are addressed in these works. What sorts of controversies do they settle? Mm. So we have spurious works that are designed to tell us about, for example, church polity. How should the church be organized? What should the role of a bishop be? And you can tell when they were written because those were hot topics early in the second century. But if you go back to the Gospels, how easy it would have been if these were free inventions or highly malleable things that hadn't been set down in any definitive form, how easy it would have been to have inserted a sentence here or there from Jesus mandating a certain kind of organization 
And yet, in the very passages where Jesus does talk about how believers, the called out ones, the ecclesia, are to conduct their affairs with one another, say Matthew 18, we don't see the church hierarchy spelled out in anything like the detail in which we see it in the second century. So again, that's a way that we can date these things. When these stories are filled in, almost inevitably, they're done so with a view to pushing some kind of position that's a hot topic at that point, the Gnostic Gospels. Lord, tell us about the aeons and the pleroma. What is that? Was that a hot topic in bars around the Sea of Galilee in the first century? No. This is Gnostic doctrine. You can tell it stands out like a fingerprint in the text. So we find these anachronisms in these texts, and that's one of the ways that we know these are not early texts. They bear the mark of the situation in which they were written. Dr. McGrew, thanks for talking with us. Thanks so much for having me on, Dale. It's been a blast. Again, the book is called Four Views on Christianity and Philosophy. It's edited by Gould and Davis, and you can find a link to this book on the blog post for this episode at trinities.org. This week's thinking music has been Monkey Bars by Andy G. Cohen. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to share on social media. And if you're a regular listener, please consider clicking the red button on any blog post and giving us a review in the iTunes store for your country. Thanks for listening. We'll see you online at trinities.org. Till next time. Don't forget to love God with all your mind.